really appreciate the opportunity to just be before uh, men. I, uh, I, I usually like to pick my subject matter. Um, my friend Nick sends me an email and he goes, here's the list. It's smaller than you would have imagined because we already lined up a lot of the speakers. They selected all of the, the good ones. <laughs> and my choices were sort of like lust, gluttony, you know, uh, just apathy and all this stuff. And I'm just like, oh, man, I'll take lust. <laughs> so here's the good news. If I offend you today, it's next fall. Okay? I didn't pick the subject matter. Um, but let's hope that God will redeem all things, man, and just kind of have a good time with us this morning. I want to just share a little parable with you. It's a story of a very wise old man that lived in a remote village on a mountaintop. He was regarded as one of the wisest men uh, throughout the land, and people would travel like the, just great distances to come and spend time with him and ask uh, some of the deepest questions of life. Um, will I get married? Why does pain and suffering exist? Um, tell me everything there is to know about love, um, money, relationships. And uh, so which just a very wise old man would spend his entire day answering people's questions, and everyone that ever came uh, um, along his way would always leave fulfilled. Until one day, these two young men set out with some wrong motives, and they decided that they were going to be the ones that would stump this wise old man. They went out, and they got a chicken. They said, this is what we're going to do. We shall approach this wise old man and hold the chicken behind our back and attempt to make him look foolish amongst the people. We're going to ask him if the chicken that we're holding behind our back is alive or dead. If he says it's alive, we'll wring its neck and show a dead chicken. If he says that it's dead, we will leave the chicken unharmed and show a live chicken. <clears throat> and this is how we'll accomplish our task of making him look foolish. So the young men woke up that morning hell-bent on making their mission a reality. And as they uh, stole the chicken, went over to uh, the wise old man, prepared to enact their plan, and they put the chicken behind their, hand, behind their backs and approached the wise old man. They asked him the question, is this chicken alive or dead? And he looks at them and he says, well, the power of that answer is in your hands. You know, sometimes as, uh, as men, oftentimes as men, we are held accountable not only by what God puts in our hands, but also sometimes what he allows our eyes to see. So this morning, it's my effort, my attempts, and the time that we're together is to sort of, um, I do want to challenge you a little bit, respectfully challenge you, but, uh, but I'd like to just sort of unpack a little bit of uh, God's Word and the example of David. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I just want to pray. Uh, uh, not that uh, your prayers this morning weren't good enough, but uh, 
I'd just like to pray and uh, just ask God's blessing over our time. Father, we are uh, such a joy to come before you. We know that in your presence there is fullness of joy. We know that in your presence amazing things can happen. We know that uh, it's not by accident that you have purposed in the hearts of uh, these dozens of men to wake up early on a Saturday morning and the busyness of the season to seek you. So Lord, regardless of where we are in our journeys, regardless of where we are in terms of our understanding of you, I just pray that you would uh, just be glorious over this time. I pray that it not be my words that are speaking this morning, and I pray that it really not be uh, about me, but all about you. I pray that your presence here would saturate our lives, that we would be better, not because of our own intellect, but because we've spent time with you. So I just want to give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys know this story. Uh, many of you know the story. This is the story of uh, David and Bathsheba. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful story with a lot of lessons that I think uh, hopefully we'll take some, uh, something away from. But let me just read it to you. Here's how it starts. It says, In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. See, I love the scriptures, man. You can read one verse, and you think like, yeah, okay, yeah. So, so they were going off to war, and so what? He stayed behind. But just in that one or two verses right there, there's so much... That, uh, that, that you can unpack. As you study the passage, um, a lot of theologians agree on this one, one thing. At this point in David's life, he's probably close to about 50 years old. So he's not the young, you know, David from David and Goliath anymore. He's got some life experience under his belt. Uh, probably still a tough dude, but, uh, but, but he's a little bit advanced in age. And, uh, and, and his military advisors would probably tell him, hey, you should probably be comfortable with being a shot caller now, a decision maker, a military planner, advisor, leader, and not the front line kind of guy in your life. So this is uh, what happens. Now, sounds like good advice, doesn't it? But we have a dilemma. David is out of position. Just because he was given really good practical advice to not be on the front lines doesn't mean that we abdicate our responsibility as men, as leaders. David still had a very significant moral responsibility as a leader to be present with the army. He did have tons of military experience that could serve the military well. And yet, he sends Joab. They're engaged in battle, and he's back in Jerusalem. Have you ever, uh, anyone here ever seen an orchestra before they actually go on? It's probably the worst sounding thing under the sun, right? It's amazing. You have all of these musicians trying to tune their instrument with, 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 with no sense of order, and, uh, and, and musicians are an interesting breed, aren't they? Right? Right? Uh, they're just an interesting breed. You've got to love them. 
But there's something really powerful that happens the minute the guy with the tuxedo shows up. And he stands before them, and it's silence. And all of a sudden, he knows the harmonies and all the parts, and he begins to lead. There's something really special about when a man is in the right position. But likewise, there's also some significant perils when we as leaders, when we as men, are out of position. And this is what we're finding. David was out of position. Um, the first lesson I want to share with you as we unpack this is the perils of idleness. Okay? Um, I have oftentimes seen this played out too often in the lives of a lot of men, and I've been guilty of it myself. But, uh, but I wanted to just share with you this really great quote that I found here as it pertains to this example of idleness that David has given us. One of my favorite authors wrote this. He says, idleness isn't just the absence of activity. For all of us need regular rest. Idleness is also activity to not having a clear understanding of your purpose. Sin has a funny way of discovering men who are out of position. So that's why one of the most effective ways of avoiding situations with our eyes that, that may cause us to sin is to avoid tempting situations altogether. I want to read a passage to you uh, in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. I, uh, I've read this passage a million times, but last night, it was close to midnight when I read it again. And I kid you not, I was up till about 1.30 meditating on that passage. I'm not trying to sound overly religious to you. I, it was a stupid move, actually, considering how early I had to wake up today and then be fresh before you today. But the message is always for the minister first. So this is me confessing to you that this message hit me between the forehead this morning. Um, James chapter 1. It says... But each one is drawn away by his own desires or lust and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. I'll read it again. But each one is drawn away by his own desires or lust and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Let's pick up on the story again with David. Verse 2. It says, One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, he slept with her, and then she went back home. And in verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. Verse 2, it says, From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Nothing wrong with admiring God's creation, right? How many of you have looked at a beautiful woman? <laughs> Hopefully it was your wife. <laughs> if 
it wasn't your wife, that's okay too. As long as you didn't take a second and a third glance at that beautiful woman, right? But this is kind of like the, the dilemma of this story. Is that David, out of position, decides that he's going to be walking around the roof of his palace because he doesn't understand his purpose. Probably should have been on the battlefield with his men. But because he's out of position, his eyes are able to see something that are going to reveal a character defect in his life. This man who was branded as a man after God's own heart is going to realize that he is going to come to face with this lustful behavior in his life that has not been readily dealt with in the past. He sees Bathsheba, admires her. And then this is that second, third, and fourth glance. Verse 4 says that he inquired, and then he sent for her. So you see how there's this fine line between being an admirer of God's creation. Because we can look at all of the things that God has created and find great beauty in it, right? You look at creation. I mean, you, I, I, I'm amazed. I'm colorblind, okay? And the colors that I do master, that I can see, blow me away at God's tapestry and, and, and his craftsmanship and his creativity. Uh, I'm a city kid, so when I go up into the mountains, uh, it, it, it's foreign for me, right? But I look at that, and I'm just like, wow, God created that. That's amazing, right? I've been in the jungles of Uganda, and, and, and I've seen plants that I've never seen that you just see on the Internet. I've seen animals, that, that, that I, that, and I've touched animals that, that you only observe in a zoo. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that existed. That's so cool. So there's that fine line between recognizing the God of creation and admiring that which his hand has created, but yet, because of the brokenness of man, don't we have a way of just jacking it up? <laughs> we have a way of taking something that should be holy and draws us to a holy God to recognize his awesomeness, and we have this amazing way of just destroying the most beautiful things that God has created. And this is what's happening here. Here's another point. I've learned over the years that sin never travels alone, and it carries corporate consequences. Well, what do I mean by that? It appears here that David's committed to his decision. But now, here's, here's the other damaging fact, is that now David is involving other people around him to become accomplices in his sin. See, a lot of times we think, well... Mark, come on, don't be so hard on me, right? I'm lusting after, but I'm not acting on it. So then, that's my deal, that's my beef between me and God. And I'm not perfect, right? We minimize sin, don't we? Come on. Maybe I'm the only sinful person, right? I minimize sin, alright? I do it, okay? I know you guys are far better Christians than me, okay? But, 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 but this is what happens, okay? And then, I told you, we jack things up. All of a sudden now, there are corporate consequences to sin. You look at the original sin in the garden, and each and every one of us have had challenges in our lives that we never probably would have imagined or even deserved. But it's because the aspect of sin and its corporate consequences on all of humanity. And this is what we're seeing played out here in the life of David. This act of corporate sin. 
playing out over the course of the people that he has been called to lead. And now he's bringing down these messengers that are around him that are called to serve the king, right? Anyone ever been, anyone here have a boss? <laughs> right? Probably married to her, right? <laughs> but uh, but um, if you've ever been in a position where you are under authority, maybe uh, there's some former military men in this room, okay? You appreciate the fact that you're under authority, but there are times sometimes where maybe you are given a command that doesn't sit well with you. Well, you have to weigh the consequences of that decision and whether or not you follow that command, right? So now these messengers who are under authority by King David are given a mandate to go find Bathsheba and bring her back to him. So as I was looking at this passage, I started, this is 2 Samuel chapter 11, right? So I started going back. And I'm like, what happened in the 10 chapters before this story? See, if I'm going to confess something to you, I'll confess this. That there was a season in my life where I was an assistant to a very influential person. And I didn't have the intestinal fortitude to stand up to this person and tell them that they were exposed. That there were decisions that they were asking of me. There were things that they were doing that were damaging and potentially very harmful to them and others. I learned a very difficult lesson in my life. But I'll tell you what I've learned. Is that God wants to be Lord over all aspects of my life. The macro and the micro. And there are going to be times where, where we're going to observe things with our eyes that we don't necessarily agree with. And this is, let me just share with you some of the stuff that I started finding. I shared with you that, um, that sin never travels alone. It carries corporate consequences. And the subtlety of sin. Look at this. I asked myself this. Where was the King David whose messengers in 2 Samuel 1 saw a broken and contrite, mournful David saddened by the loss of his friend Jonathan and his enemy Saul. Where was the mighty warrior David whose messengers in 2 Samuel 5 saw him leading the nation into battle against the mighty army of the Jebusites and then went on to conquer the Philistines because the Lord God Almighty was with him, as it says in verse 10. Where was the David whose messengers saw in 2 Samuel 6.14 David dancing before the Lord with all of his might as the ark was brought into the city? See, David was leading from a pretty, probably a pretty good place in his life at, the, at that moment. But here's an aspect that, and this is the part that hit me between the eyes last night. We can approach God in a way that honors him publicly before men. But the greater honor before God is how we approach him in intimate and private moments. Are we the type of men who, 
what people observe from the outside is who we are on the inside and in our private moments. Because sin is going to find all of us out. And this is what we're finding in David's life. Is that lust just happened to be the revealer of this deeper character flaw in his life. Now, here's the other thing. Could you imagine how this story might have been different? If the messengers would have told David, David, I know you, King David, I know you gave me this order. I know you gave me this order, but you mustn't do this. She's married to one of your most faithful soldiers. She's family to one of your most valued advisors. And this grievous sin against the heart of God is huge. It's hard to stand for righteousness when the pressure above us is so great sometimes, huh? We worry about acceptance, if we're going to be honest, don't we? Isn't acceptance and the wrestle of acceptance oftentimes the reason why maybe if my friend Mike is struggling with a particular thing, and I know that Mike is struggling, and I love Mike. Mike's a friend. But because I value acceptance in the life of Mike, maybe I remain silent, even though I know that he's exposed. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Isn't that true? We avoid conflict. We avoid tenuous circumstances and, and conversations because we focus more on acceptance. And there, there isn't that, that iron sharpening iron that makes us men of integrity, make us men that become more and more in the image of, of Jesus. I just wonder, as I read that story, how the story might have been different if David had surrounded himself with messengers who had that intestinal fortitude, that charisma, that, that, that love for God to just simply serve as a reminder to David. David, you're acting like the David in 2 Samuel 11. And the David that I admire is the David from chapters 1, 2, 5, all the way leading up to 11. What would that look like? You know, it's been um, a really mild winter for, for us here in New England, right? But because I know this group already in the short time that we've been together, I'll bet money, I'm not a gambling man, but I'll bet money on this. I'll bet money that even though it's been a very uh, weak winter, that all of you guys are fully stocked, okay? You have backup shovels for your backup shovels, okay? You, you probably have an ample supply of chopped wood, you brag about it. Okay, uh, you know, you, you, you look and there's like 10 cords of wood in your backyard and, and, uh, and it's not fresh wood either. It's like dried. It's really good wood, you know, from like six years. It's almost like a vintage wine, you, right? Um, you, you have bags upon bags of pellets for your pellet stoves in the event of, uh, uh, of a power outage. You have a generator. You got candles. You got lamps and flashlights. Your furnace has been fully serviced twice, right? You got a full reserve of gas tanks. Your snowblower, spark plugs have been changed. The list goes on and on and on and on. Why? Why? Because we know that it's inevitable that here in New England, a storm is going to come, right? And you don't want to be that guy that has to call your friend to admit that you were too stupid and you overlooked something, so, so you want to have your badge of honor, right? Oh, I don't care. 
12 inches, that's not, I'm ready for that. If we lose power for six days, I've been fine. I can survive for 14. My house, right? Why don't we have the same intentionality for spiritual matters? Why don't we prepare for spiritual storms the way we prepare for physical storms? See, because the reality is, is that lust is going to come. Temptation is going to come to every single one of us, right? And the, the truth of the matter is, is that we have to be men who are prepared. We have to be men who know what we're going to do prior to. Why? Because as men, we stink at making those types of decisions on the fly. There are some decisions that we excel at, and there are some decisions that we are not very good at. Lustful decisions, those, those issues of, of, that, 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 that draw on our weakness below the belt. We have to know what we're going to do before those types of spiritual storms come our way. But it's just interesting to note that we take all of those intentional steps for matters that are so less significant than matters of the soul. David learned that lust simply reveals what we've hidden. That's what we're learning here, is that David learned that lust simply reveals what we've hidden. He failed to watch for the moment of decision. In verse 4, look what it says. It says that she came to him and he slept with her. And up until that point, David sleeping with her made, he made several decisions that produced disastrous consequences. David probably enjoyed the title, A Man After God's Own Heart, so much that he never imagined that a Bathsheba moment could strip all that away in the blink of an eye. He wasn't there, I'm sorry, he wasn't where he was supposed to be to begin with. He gave into lust. He devised in his mind a plan to get her to sleep with him. He involved others in the treacherous slip, slip downhill. And he acted upon his lustful thoughts and, and decisions and his intentions. Well, many of you guys know the rest of the story, right? It's the Jerry Springer Slover Show. Right? It's, it's like... It's, it's, it's like a page out of the Jerry Springer book, right? She comes and he tells him, hey, I'm pregnant. Just what we want to hear, right? David realizes she's pregnant, and he attempts to manipulate the scenario by bringing her husband Uriah back from battle. Uriah, unable to escape the thought that his men were in battle, and David goes um, through several steps, man, to try to cover up his sin and try to manipulate his way out of his own concoction. Uriah obviously was a man of great integrity. Because even after David got him drunk as a skunk, he still is stumbling back through the palace walls and hallways. And the temptation would probably be, well, let me go live with my wife, right? And he doesn't do that. Even in his drunken stupor, he was still a man of greater moral character than what the king was portraying right now. So let's just kind of like encapsulate that whole, so the nation of Israel um, and the people of God were, were victimized in, in all of that, right? You mentioned at least three other ones that I heard you say. Uh, you said Bathsheba, Uriah, the messengers, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so that's four. Uh, can you think of any other ones? David. David, yeah. yeah. 
Five. Solomon. Yeah. Oh, he, oh wasn't it true that wasn't the first the first son died and right. then Solomon yeah. was the yeah. Son? Uh, yeah. That's Jesus. Jesus. Son so mm -hmm. the one that he died. originally conceived. So, so, so that's another victim, right? But, um, yeah. You're up to like six. God's judgment by Nathan, and and the one who allowed Uriah to be killed. Ah, that's a good one, sir. Your name? Joab. Fred. Fred, great wise one back there, yeah. So uh, so I put Joab, the military commander, and the people, uh, the men around Uriah at the time of his death. You guys remember the story, right? Uh, David sends clear words to the military commander. He says, hey, go attack, right? Send a group, and then give the order that they are to withdraw and leave Uriah on the front lines alone so that he could... I'm sure that other men died in executing that order, right? I mean, this is a, a pretty twisted story of, of, of the corporate consequences of sin, right? There, there's a, a couple big ones that, that, that I'm hoping you guys will catch. Come on, brother. Who just said that? Bob? Yeah. That is probably the biggest one. In here is. God. <laughs> right? The heart of God was greatly grieved by all of these actions, because the nation of Israel was supposed to be an example to all of the other nations. I think that serves as a wonderful example to us, though, huh? That if we don't love ourselves enough to worry about the consequences of our actions, maybe in those seasons we should probably at least think about the heart of God and how that might inform our decisions. Thank you for, for sharing that. So yeah, I counted at least nine. I, I stopped counting after nine. Uh, I'm not as smart as you guys. Um, but um, cool. Um, who else? What other questions did you guys tackle? Who did like two? John. So we talked about that lust isn't just sex either. It's power, money, um, yeah. you name it. And, and men, uh, you know, typically want those things because we want stuff. You know, it's just lust for stuff. Um, so it, it is dangerous for men uh, if put in the position we are where head of the family, working, and we get in, put into those positions on, on a regular basis. Um, and then some of the downward steps, lust played in, in the king of, you know, in the life of King David. Obviously his choice to, uh, you know, look and then act on his lust and all the other things that he did, you know, just took him down to the point where it broke him down to where he was broken, you know, and he turned away from God instead of turning towards God for help. That's good. But number three. Anyone? Or one or four? Anyone do one? You guys tackled one a little bit? Yeah. You did two. You did two? <laughs> well, give us your best thoughts on, on the table discussion. Put on your spiritual armor every day. The importance of, uh, of, of putting on your spiritual armor every day, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and pray when. And, uh, and, and, you know, as, as men, isn't that one of the hardest things? Um, 
to ask God or ask anyone for help, right? Because we're so good at figuring things out on our own, and we, we pride ourselves on that. So, 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 again, this is sort of like that whole thing, like that lust is one of those sins that doesn't travel alone. It's usually accompanied with pride. It, it, it's usually accompanied by a whole host of other things that complicate the issue of lust, right? And, uh, and that's what made this kind of like perilous journey for David so, so, so damaging, is because all of a sudden this man after God's own heart, is, and, and, and he's responsible for upholding the spiritual authority and, 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 and the law of God amongst the nations, amongst the people, and all of a sudden he's like <coughs> murdering, stealing, coveting, like, you name it. He's violating all of God's laws. And he's supposed to be the standard. Yeah. Sir. One thing that I appreciated after I read this story many, many times was um, that when Nathaniel, or Nathan rather, spoke to um, uh, David through as God, God said to him, I gave you everything that you wanted. Saul's kingdom, his wives, and all like this. And if you had asked for more, I would have given you anything you asked. Yeah. And this was the clincher to me. Then why did you detest my word by uh, committing you know, sin? Yeah. And I think what struck me there is that God is not so concerned about whether it's an egregious sin like adultery or a minor sin like gossip or whatever. To him, anything that you do that affects his, the relationship that you have with God grieves God. Mm -hmm. And you detest his word <clears throat> by grieving him. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Mm -hmm. We took on, uh, I think, question four. Yeah. And question four deals with... Uh, Thinking back on critical decisions you may have mishandled in which others had paid a price for your actions. Mm. For me, uh, I took it up 100,000 feet because uh, it's a question that says, are we willing to recognize that virtually everything we do in our lives has a consequence? We are who we are and we are responsible for the results of what we do, good or bad. We like to we like to own the good though, right? Well, yeah, like like does. like when JP's notes make me look really good, right? I was quick to own that. But it may not be in the complex world we live in intuitively obvious at the moment what's good, what's bad. I mean, there are you know coming from a corporate world, there are a lot of decisions that are made on day one that may not manifest themselves until day four hundred. Uh, you have to have the vision and not taking into account the fact that you are responsible for the result and not taking advantage of the opportunity to talk with people who have had experiences that may have bearing on the, on, on the action you're taking, uh, you know, is, a, uh, is really an abrogation of your responsibilities as a, as, yes, as, as a, as a human. Yeah. Uh, we are responsible for who we are. We can't necessarily blame it on the other guy. And... Uh, that's that's what number four says to me. Be open to what the uh, help and advice is. Make your own decision, but recognize you own it, good or bad. Awesome. 
you know, and think about what you just said, it actually erodes the moral fiber of our community. Whether you're a pastor, a president, a father, a leader, you wear a badge of credibility. That's what you have earned to be. And um, I can say, well, if you're a Bill Clinton, okay, our president, or Barack Obama, or whether you're someone else that you look upon and say, they have that badge, they get paid for that title. Or if you're a pastor in your community that, you know, you're fooling around with women because they like the way you sing. All of a sudden, you get exposed. There's a moral fiber that we all believe in, that we live by. And when that's broken, it affects every one of us. Sure does. Because now we look at each other like, what are you hiding? I don't believe in you. You're really not a Christian. And once you break that, that that's everything we believe in. Yeah. That's what lust does. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, one of the commentators that I was reading uh, specifically about this passage talked about uh, the, the culture amongst the servants in the palace. And, uh, and, and the culture was such that um, even private information amongst the king's affairs was commonly shared amongst the help. Mm-hmm. So before um, Bathsheba even made her way over, it's highly likely that everyone in the palace already knew what was about to happen. And that pattern never went away. Uh, even when he was dying, uh, the people all knew him pretty well, and so they arranged for a pretty young virgin to come lay next to him. And it says, he didn't have sex with her. Well, yeah, he's up in the years, he's dying. Uh, okay, it would be challenging. <laughs> okay, but... Uh, yeah, he was just trying to keep warm. His body, his blood right. flow was, uh, was, uh, was affecting his body temperature, right? Yeah. That's what happens? But it was such a life pattern that they're like, ah, let's supply a young virgin for him. Ugh. Yeah. Well, it goes to show that, uh, that even, uh, even to Carl's point, is that, um, is that even if you get it right 99 times out of 100, we may be judged by um, that indiscretion, that moment uh, where um, where, where people remember the violation and not the blessing that you've been. Uh, we kind of live in that type of society nowadays anyway, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember my dad was, uh, my, my parents divorced when I was a, a young kid, and, uh, and he was a preacher. And, uh, and he had an affair with one of the women from the church. And I remember uh, at a very early age just how fickle people could be. Um, because my dad dedicated his entire life to serving other people, to the, honestly, disregarded our family um, to serve other people. And his life was forever changed, and so was ours, when he made that horrible decision to lay with another woman from the congregation, and he never recovered from it. So, so people forgot about his 18 years of service prior to, and all they remembered, in reality, was his last act. Uh, and, and, and we may be judged by it. See, but doesn't that inform the way in which we should approach this life? The fact that we might be judged by our final act. Now, the question begs to be asked by all of us is, is what is the panorama of our lives and, and our final act going to be? How are we going to be judged and how are we going to be known? How does God look at our decision? We're going to have to give an account for that. Every single one of us. You know, I'm going to lay, uh, just uh, end our time together with, um, I love this book, um, 
he's way too young for this to be called a classic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm hoping that maybe in 50 or 60 years, um, this will be one of the, the classics, all right? But his name's David Platt. wrote this really good book called Follow Me. Highly recommend it. But on page 111, he, uh, really cool quote, because the issue of lust isn't so much as what we put our eyes on, but it's what, how we misinterpret our desires. See, I think God created desire so that we could desire Him. But in our brokenness, because we live under the curse, we have created a thing called lust, and we desire things outside of God, more than we desire God. So here's what he has to say about some of this stuff, and I just want to leave you with this last thought, and we can wrap up, let you guys uh, get to your shopping. Instead of trying to conquer sin by working hard to change our actions, we can conquer sin by trusting Christ to change our affections. Remember the words of Jesus in John 6. It says, He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. This is how we overcome the pleasures of sin. By letting Christ overcome us with the power of his satisfaction. I'll read that again. This is how we overcome the pleasures of sin. By letting Christ overcome us with the power of his satisfaction. When lust, lying, greed, possessions, or pornography promise pleasure, we fight their appeal with fulfillment in Christ. We know, believe, and trust that Jesus is better. And we refuse to give in to that sin because we have found greater gratification in our Savior. The way to conquer sin is not by working hard to change our deeds, but by trusting Jesus to change our desires. I'll leave you with that. Um, in closing, my family and I, we've been worshiping with you guys here at Free Christian for the last month. It's been awesome. I, uh, I look forward to our family uh, becoming a deeper part of your church family. And I look forward to getting to know you guys a little bit more. And uh, I could ever be service to each and every one of you. I stand ready, willing, and able. Let's pray.